Well, now it's time to receive a word from the Lord. And this morning, I would like to preach a message entitled, Trust Me, Black Lives Matter. Trust me, black lives matter. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that it is in you that we live and that we move and that we have our being. We thank you, Lord God, that in the beginning you not only created the heavens and the earth, but you created man and woman in your own image and in your own likeness. And I thank you, Lord, that you instilled upon us dignity, worth, value, purpose, all mankind. And I thank you, Lord God, for what is being revealed in these days, how people who have historically and categorically been marginalized and mistreated in this country, insofar as African Americans and people of color are concerned, a new day is dawning, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that truth crushed to earth will rise again. And so, Lord, this morning I have an opportunity to present truth, your truth, the truth that sets people free, the truth that breaks the yoke of ignorance and bondage and slavery. Today, Lord God, I pray that you would be true and every man and every system and every devil a liar. So thank you, Jesus. Speak to me, speak through me, and I pray that your people would be transformed by the renewing of their minds so that they will not be conformed to the racist patterns of the world in which we live. Thank you, Lord. May the kingdom of God um, have authority in this moment as we do our best, Lord, to live for you in the earth. So we thank you, Lord, and we praise you in advance. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. In Romans chapter 13, verse 7, the Bible reads, Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And so you may have heard this statement before, I want to give honor to whom honor is due. And that's exactly how I want to begin this message this morning, by giving honor to a man, a man of God, that God has used immensely in my life and in countless thousands, if not millions of people across the globe. And I'm speaking of none other than Dr. Tony Evans, pastor of the Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas, Texas, and president of the Urban Alternative. I, I want to give honor today to this man because he has been a mentor to me. I can go all the way back to when I was 14 years old, living in Baltimore, Maryland. And there was this preacher who was starting to get a lot of acclaim and fanfare in the community, and his name was Tony Evans. I came to find out that Tony Evans grew up on the same street in Baltimore that my grandmother lived on, and that's Poplar Grove Street. And even up till last year, Dr. Evans' father, um, who passed away, he lived on that same street in a crime-ridden community in Baltimore City. And so I grew up um, hearing of this man named Tony Evans, who went to uh, Dallas and became a great pastor and prolific preacher and teacher of the Word of God. And whenever he would come to town, my family would scurry and do the best they could to get to wherever he was preaching in the Baltimore area. And I became a Christian at the age of 15. But before that, I remember listening to his sermons on a cassette tape. Uh, my parents would buy the tapes, bring them home, and I would listen to this man communicate the word of God in a way that I could understand. And he made it very fun, um, very uh, practical and, and relational to my life where I was as a 14-year-old who was a churchgoer but not a Christian. And then when I did become a Christian, uh, I went to school in 1987 to, uh, really 1986, to Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. And I remember when he would come up to the school to preach. And in that day, 
um, and is still same, it's still the same today. Not many African-American preachers would come and speak to the student body. And whenever they did come, you know, you would be very happy and excited to see someone who looked like you um, on the platform proclaiming the word of God. So he would come to Liberty and he would share. And I remember one time he came to Liberty, he not only preached at the school, but he preached at Thomas Road Baptist Church, which is the church that the late Jerry Falwell pastored. And I remember him preaching a message on racism. And he preached from John chapter four about the Samaritan woman and how Jesus had to go through Samaria and how he ministered to that woman. He loved her well and he even drank out of her cup. He was not afraid to um, relate to her. And I remember when he preached that message, how that congregation was virtually silent because as he called out things, and this was back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, that he was calling out racism in that pretty much all white church. And I also distinctly remember he wasn't invited back to Liberty University after that. But I also recall how um, his youth pastor, um, Wayne Mitchell, who's also a Baltimore native, um, he heard about our rap group Transformation Crusade and he invited us to come to Oak Cliff in Dallas, Texas to rap. And this was before they had the massive building expansions and all the things that they're doing now. This was way back in the day, in the early 90s. And we went out and we rapped for the youth ministry of the church and we also rapped um, to the church on Sunday morning. And we all remember the time that Dr. Evans spent with us, talking to us, mentoring us, modeling a godliness for us as far as what it means to be a godly leader. And, uh, and on from there, I also remember going to his church development conferences that he would have for pastors and people who wanted to be a pastor. And before I became a pastor in 1995, I would go to these conferences and I would be introduced to great scholars and speakers who were African-American people that I had never heard of before, like James Meeks. And uh, he would come and break the word and man, I, uh, uh, what's my other brother out in uh, Los Angeles, Kenneth Ulmer. So all these great men of God would come and not only preach, but they would lead classes and you could get close to them, talk to them and ask any kind of question that you wanted. And I remember when um, I felt this urge to plant Strong Tower Bible Church and I sat down with Dr. Evans in the midst of all of his busyness, he made time for me. And, uh, and I remember some of the insight and the wisdom he gave me before I launched Strong Tower Bible Church. So he's been a key part in my life and, um, and, and, and so much so that he's written over 50 books, probably 60 by now. I know I have 95% of his books and I probably read 60% of his books. Uh, so he's made, once again, a lasting impact in my life. Um, I remember times when he would come into town, into Nashville to preach and I would go pick him up from the airport and I drive him around in my wife's small little car. And, uh, but, but again, he didn't care. He, he wasn't looking for a limousine. He was looking for a ride. And he was also looking for an opportunity to sow into a young man like myself. And I remember telling him some of the things I was frustrated with in ministry. And he lovingly rebuked me to my face about uh, those things. And so um, again, just a good man, a godly man, and I remember when Strong Tower had celebrated our 10 year anniversary, I reached out to him and asked if he could give a video tribute and he was glad to do that for us. And I remember even being invited to preach at his church, not on a Sunday morning because he rarely gives up Sunday mornings, but um, I preached for their vacation Bible school in the evening. So that was a distinct and unique honor for me. And in 2013, when Strong Tower Bible Church acquired this facility, we had it dedicated in 2014, and I called and asked if he would come and dedicate Strong Tower Bible Church, and he surely did that. He preached here, and he prayed not only over the facility, but of course he prayed for the ministry, and he prayed for me and Darina. So this man um, is a giant in the faith, and I'm grateful that um, the Lord has allowed my path to intersect with his. And 
when I think about uh, Tony Evans, not only was he the first African-American to graduate with a doctorate from Dallas Theological Seminary, he also became the first black person to write and publish a full Bible commentary and study Bible. So let me say that again. He became the first person who is black or African-American who wrote and published a full Bible commentary and study Bible. So we're still making firsts. So in 2019, that was a first. No black person had ever done that before. And it was such a great accomplishment that his Bible is encased in the National Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. So what a great honor um, to have been bestowed upon this man of God. Now, Dr. Tony Evans' uh, black life not only matters to God, but his black life also matters to me and so many others. So thank God because his black life matters. And ironically, ironically, in the same museum, in another corridor, there is another Bible on display that deeply impacted the lives and the souls of black people. I'm talking about the slave Bible. The slave Bible is known for what's not in it. You see, 90% of the Old Testament has been removed from the slave Bible. And 50% of the New Testament has been taken out of the slave Bible. And in the King James Version of the Bible, there are 1,189 chapters, but in the slave Bible, there are only 232 chapters. Removed are passages that might have encouraged slave revolts and uprisings. Gone is Moses confronting Pharaoh, saying to him, let my people go. Gone is the book of Galatians and the verse that says in chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if that verse sounds familiar, that is our verse whereby we get our vision here at Strong Tower Bible Church, where the Lord is expanding his uh, diverse kingdom. We are getting to experience his diverse kingdom. And right now I am explaining a portion of his diverse kingdom because in God's kingdom, there is race, there is class and there is gender. Yet we are all one in Christ, one, but not the same. And so back in the 1800s, the missionaries felt that if the enslaved Africans were to get an understanding of what God says in his word about liberation, about freedom, about identity, about equality, they may not accept, no longer accept their second class inferiority status as slaves. But in the midst of it all, God got his truth through to his people, even though there were Europeans and white Americans who were intentional to withhold truth from God's word from the enslaved. Now, I find it interesting that one of the passages that was left in the slave Bible was Ephesians 6, 5, slaves obey your master. So from the beginning, the white man was doing his best to tailor fit what message from God he wanted the enslaved to understand. Now that to me is not only bold, that is satanic. Because those colonizers understood that if the enslaved realized that they were on the same plane with the enslavers, then that would have changed their lives and it just might have caused a revolution. And the reason why I say that is because when we read the Bible in the book of Genesis, when Satan comes on the scene and the first thing he says to Eve when he tempts her is, did God really say? So he's questioning the word, but also he's leaving out a great portion of the word because when God spoke to Adam and Eve, he told them that they were able to have every tree that was in the garden. But from the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Satan came and tempted them 
with a portion of what God said and not all of what God said. And those who follow in that trait are the kind of Christians who come up with doctrines that have been influenced by demons. And we'll see one of those doctrines today insofar as talking about the doctrine of white supremacy. It is straight from hell. It comes from the devil himself. And so those who take portions out of the scripture, even when we are warned in the book of Revelation, the last chapter of the last book, that those who take words out of this book will be judged by the plagues that are in this book. Even still, the audacity and the pride and the evil and the satanic influence to take scriptures out of the Bible. My goodness, what a bold and demonic attitude. But I thank God that he was still in control because my ancestors were able to get the truth. You see, black people were lied to because the colonizer, that is the enslaver, that is the white man, also known as the Christian, knew the power of a lie. They knew the power of a lie because if truth can set you free, then a lie can keep you bound. They knew the power of a lie. They knew, listen to this, that black lies mattered. So lying to black people mattered. And as they lied to black people, they were also lying to themselves. They needed black lies to matter in order to create a society where black lives did not matter. Did you hear that? They needed black lies to matter in order to create a society where black lives did not matter. The Bible was used as a justification for slavery and segregation. I can't get into this, but historically, slavery happened in the mid-1400s as uh, the Portuguese went into West Africa and they discovered black gold. Not just what was in the grounds and in the mountains, but namely the Nubians or the Africans. They discovered black gold. And thus the transatlantic slave trade began. And so they needed to feel good about the bad thing that they were doing. So the church at the time, the Catholic church in particular, and later the Protestant church, they put a biblical stamp on the movement because the movement was making a whole lot of money. And so therefore they went into the scriptures and developed these doctrines of demons to say that black people, descendants of Ham, as we're gonna see in a moment, that they are cursed to a life of servitude. So therefore the Europeans felt that it was their call from God to enslave not only these Africans, but to come to North America and to just rape, pillage, rob, and steal from the native people who were here. And so, so this is some, some evil stuff. So when we think about where we are today as a people, things just don't happen. There's a reason why they happen. If you're walking down the street and you see a turtle on top of a fence post, you know that that turtle didn't get there by himself. Somebody put that turtle there. And when we look at our society today and the problems that we have, these things just didn't happen by themselves. They happened because somebody, a group of people set it up that way. It's been said that the system isn't broken. It was designed this way. And so we're going to look at the fact that it needs an overhaul. It needs to be redesigned. But first, let's call out these lies that have been perpetrated since 1619 here in North America. Yes, the Bible was used not only to justify slavery, but also segregation. There's a picture in the library in Nashville um, in the civil rights room. And one of those pictures shows a woman, a black woman, taking her children into school, um, no doubt after the Brown versus Board of Education ruling had gone down, desegregating public schools, and she's taking her children into school, but she has to go through a gauntlet of white hatred. 
And on one of the signs uh, that the um, people are holding, uh, trying to discourage this black woman and her children from going to school, it had Genesis 9.27 written on it, where it says, May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. So what does Genesis 9.27 have to do with uh, this black woman trying to integrate, uh, uh, live by her new rights that she has received to go to school, have her children go to school in this neighborhood with white people? What does Genesis 9.27 have to do with that in 1954 and 1955? Well, Japheth is the progenitor of the Caucasoids and the European people. And so we see in this passage that God is going to enlarge Japheth, but he's also going to dwell in the tents of Shem or the Semitic people. And we'll talk about that momentarily. Those are the people that Jesus comes from. But then it says, and may Canaan be his servant. Canaan is a descendant of Ham. Ham is the progenitor of African and Mongoloid and dark skinned people, brown skinned people across the globe. And so based on an earlier verse in Genesis 9:25, when Noah had awakened from his drunken stupor, he cursed Canaan. He said, cursed be you, Canaan, a slave of slaves you will be. So white people needing to justify slavery and segregation went into the Bible and did what is called not not exegesis, but eisegesis, reading into the Bible, their biases and their slants and their prejudices to make it say what they wanted to say. And therefore, they said that Canaan, a descendant of Ham, the father of Africans and people of color, that they are cursed to a life of slavery and servitude, specifically to the sons of Japheth. And this is where you get what has been called the curse of Ham that has been taught in this country for hundreds of years. And uh, even in the 20th century was still being taught in many seminaries and Christian colleges. Um, and even the first uh, uh, Schofield reference Bible, I believe the 1917 edition had in the notes, the footnotes, the curse of Ham, meaning that Black people are cursed by God to a life of slavery and servitude, specifically to white folks. Now, Dr. Martin Luther King said it was argued that the Negro was inferior by nature because of Noah's curse upon the children of Ham. The greatest blasphemy of the whole ugly process was that the white man ended up making God his partner in the exploitation of the Negro. Since 1619 in North America, white people believed, taught, enforced, and reinforced through violence that black people were inferior and that black lives did not matter to them nor to God. So if you believe God has authorized you to mistreat descendants from Africa, then who can tell you that you're wrong? Because at that time, you have the authority, if you will. Um, black people are not able to challenge white thinking. Black people are not able to challenge white theological constructs. At that time, they had to receive what was being cast upon them because many of our ancestors could not read, even though we had a relationship with God. And we just did not have the power to debate the Bible back then. But it's a different day because I need to use the same Bible that was misused to say that black people don't matter, that black people are supposed to be slaves. And this has been ingrained in our culture for hundreds of years. So when we think about why is it that black lives don't matter? It's because people have been conditioned to believe this for hundreds of years. But just as people use the Bible to promote a lie, I'm going to use the same Bible to promote the truth to say that black lives do in fact matter to God and they ought to matter to you and to me. Let's go to Genesis chapter 9 
verses 18 through 19. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the whole earth was populated. So after the flood, God is going to repopulate the earth and he's going to use Noah's three sons. Now, in the Hebrew culture, one's name was an embodiment of what one was or who one was. Um, for instance, if your name is Moses, that means to draw out. Moses was drawn out of the Nile and he would draw his people out of Egypt and into the promised land. And over and over again in Hebrew culture, your name has great bearings on what you're going to do or even what you look like. So Japheth, one of Noah's sons, his name means bright or fair. Uh, so, so Noah had sons, as we're going to see, who ranged in color from light to dark. And then there was Shem. Shem's name means olive or dusky. And these, he is the father of the Semitic people and the Arabic people. But then there was Ham. Ham means dark or burnt or black. As a matter of fact, based on Young's analytical concordance to the Bible, the Hebrew word for Ham means swarthy, dark color. Ham as an adjective means black or warm. So Noah had three sons who ranged in complexion, and from these three sons, the entire earth would be populated. Genesis chapter 10, verse 6, the sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. And so if we were to go deeper into these words and trace where these sons migrated, we would see that Cush is also the name for Ethiopia. We would see that Mizraim is the name for Egypt and Put is the name for Libya. And then there is Canaan. And so where are these countries or these peoples located? They're located in Africa. And so Ham's children, his dark children, they began to fill Africa as well as what we know today as the Middle East. But it is connected uh, very closely to Africa. That's where the Canaanites dwell. And those were the only ones who were cursed by Noah. Uh, Ham was not cursed, meaning that all black people and everyone who comes from Ham is cursed. But only Canaan was cursed. The Egyptians weren't cursed. The Ethiopians weren't cursed. The Libyans weren't cursed. The Canaanites were cursed. And I don't believe there were any Canaanites living in the world in the 1400s. There were Africans, yes, but not Canaanites. We know that the Israelites defeated the Canaanites to go into the promised land. Um, and, and another thing about curses, curses would only last to three and four generations. And any curse can be reversed and even repealed when a person comes to faith in God through Jesus Christ. And so if a person accepts Christ, they are blessed. They are not cursed. However, if you want to have a lie live because a black lie must matter, you will say that black people are cursed. Even though the Canaanites died off centuries ago. But this was the lie that lived <clears throat> through biased exegesis by white scholars. Ham is always interpreted as being black when it comes to a curse. But Ham is hardly ever black when it comes to positive contributions from his descendants. Let me say that one more time. Because of biased exegesis done by quote unquote white scholars. Ham is black whenever it's something negative, like a curse. But Ham's people seem to lighten up and whiten up in the Bible whenever they do something positive. So when we look at art that comes from the Renaissance era or even art that comes out of Hollywood, people who are actually Hamitic or African in the Bible somehow strangely become white in paintings and in movie portrayals. And we're going to find out that you can't put these people that you've cursed in a positive light. Even when God puts them in a positive light, you can't put them in that light because you are now trying to play God. Because you have said that these per people's lot in life is to be cursed. 
But I got to let you know something. There are some famous Hamites in the Bible, people who descended from Ham, who are African, who are black, who are people of color with a large amount of melanin in their body. We're talking about people like Nimrod, who was the first kingdom builder in the Bible. Who he, This man built several kingdoms, and he was Hamitic or African. Then there's Hagar, who was the second wife of Abram, who after she married Abram and produced a child for him named Ishmael, God changed Abram's name from exalted father to Abraham, father of many nations. So God put Ham on the end of Abram's name to speak of the fact that there is diversity in his lineage. Why? Because Hagar was Egyptian. And so uh, this Hebrew man married an Egyptian woman and they produced this son who would once again be, become the father of the Arabic people. But not only that, Abraham went on to marry, after his wife Sarah died, another Hamitic woman named Keturah. And she gave him many sons, one of whom was Midian. And Midian was a place not far from Egypt, which is in Africa. And this was the place that Jethro came from. He was a priest of Midian who lived in Midian. And he had a daughter named, Eth uh, uh, named Zipporah. And she was an Ethiopian. And Moses married her. So there are black people in the Bible. And, uh, and, and she had a brother named Hobab who helped lead Moses throughout the wilderness wanderings. And so even when I went to Bible college, um, it was strongly discouraged uh, uh, as far as interracial dating on this Christian campus. And usually that was a buzzword to say that black guys could not date white women. And so they tried to use Old Testament scriptures this is back in the late 80s and early 90s to say that there shouldn't be any interracial dating, which would lead to interracial marriage. But they skipped over these kind of passages where Moses, a Hebrew, married an African woman named Zipporah. The only kind of mixing that God is against is religious or spiritual mixing. God is not against, quote unquote, race mixing. But if you're a racist interpreting the Bible then that is what you will believe and that is what you will preach and teach your children and that is what society will frown upon. More on that in a moment. But there were other Hamites in the Bible. Pharaoh was a Hamite or an African. You do know that Egypt is on the continent of Africa, which means that Egyptians are Africans. But how come when we see them in the movies, they're always white? But you can't have, if you're a white supremacist, you can't have the Egyptians to be white because so many of the world's inventions and contributions have come from Egyptians, from mathematics to medicine to uh, hieroglyphics to architecture, all these things, embalming. These things have come from black people. But if you say black people are cursed, this goes deeper. Rahab was a descendant of Ham. Asenath, the woman who married Joseph, she was a descendant of Ham as well. She is an Egyptian who married yet another Hebrew man. What is it about Hebrew men marrying African women? I guess, uh, as my friend Andre Sims says, uh, black wives must matter. Because she ended up giving him two uh, uh, mixed sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were part Jewish and part Egyptian African. And they are in the Bible. And then there is Ruth and Rahab and Tamar and Bathsheba, Goliath, who was a Canaanite, a Philistine, Ebed-Melech, a Cushite, who saved the life of Jeremiah the prophet. Then there was the queen of Sheba who came to Solomon. Then there was in the New Testament, Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is in northern Africa. He carried the cross of Jesus Christ. And then there is Rufus and Alexander, his two sons. Then the Bible speaks of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. The Bible speaks of the Ethiopian eunuch. And let me just pause here and say, he was a seeker. He was a worshiper. He came to Jerusalem as a proselyte to Judaism, but he ended up meeting Jesus Christ as a savior. He was sitting in a chariot. 
He was a man of great authority. He was a man of great intellect because he's reading Hebrew literature. He uh, has great power and wealth. And, and he's coming from Candace, his queen. So therefore, Africa, this country in Africa, Ethiopia, was a civilized country with a treasury and with a very intelligent people. So we don't need Hollywood, once again, to make us think that there's nothing but baboons and ignoramuses in Africa. The Bible refutes that. That is, unless you see a movie and somehow the Ethiopian eunuch is a white dude from uh, Britain or something. But that's the problem. But then there's also in the church at Antioch, there was Simon, who was called Niger. Niger, which means black. So that church had a diversity of leadership. So in the Bible, man, people of African descent are jumping off the pages in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And so with all that said, let's take a look with the time I have remaining at Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at his ethnicity. And I'm going to go to Matthew chapter one. I'll begin reading at verse one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Stop and pause. Who's Tamar? She was a Canaanite woman. The Canaanites come from Ham. And so Judah slept with Tamar. Oh boy, I can't even get into the dysfunction of this. She was his daughter-in-law who was married to one of his sons. But when his son died, he gave her the other son, but that son did not want to uh, stay with her so she wouldn't have children. And so she decided to dress up like a harlot and she slept with Judah because he was going out looking for sexual satisfaction. Oh my goodness, y'all, it's a lot going on in the scriptures. So he impregnated his daughter-in-law who was African or Hamitic. Therefore, the child that they produced would also be Racially mixed, if you will. So Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Wait a minute, who's Rahab? She was the Canaanite harlot who was in the city of Jericho that when the two spies went in, they stayed under the flax on her roof in order to hide from the men of Jericho. And she was saved because of her faith. And so it is believed by church history that one of those two spies was Salmon, who came and who married Ruth the Canaanite. And then the Bible goes on to say in verse five, uh, Obed begot Jesse and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her. Who's her? Bathsheba. Where do you trace Sheba from? Is she uh, in the line of the Semites? No. Is she in the line of the Japhethites? No. Sheba is in the line of the Hamites. So it's very strong that Bathsheba is of Hamitic or African descent. So David also married a Hamitic or woman of color. And so when you look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ, five women are mentioned here. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and then down in verse 16, Mary is mentioned, the Lord's mother. And four of the five women mentioned are women who are of African or Hamitic, Hamitic descent. So that means that Jesus is not a quote-unquote 100% full-blooded Jew. That Jesus was in fact a metstidzo. He had ancestry running all through him, not only from his Hebrew people, but also from the Hamitic people. And this may explain why Jesus's hair was like wool. This may explain why this Hebrew man had feet like brass. Not only living in a, a, a climate where one is baked and kissed by the sun, uh, causing one to get darker because of exposure to the sun. 
but also coursing through his veins, if you will, is the blood of Hamitic people. So now the earliest known image of Jesus and his disciples is in the Coptic Museum in Cairo. The Coptic Church was founded in 46 AD, approximately 1400 years before the slave trade. So the slave trade did not in introduce Africans to Jesus. Uh, we, we didn't need that evangelism. No, Africans already knew Jesus based on Acts chapter 8 when the Ethiopian went back home to Candace and the country of Ethiopia, he brought back the gospel. And, and in Ethiopia, which is close to Egypt, a church was born as early as A.D. 46. And that church is still in existence to this day. And, and, and they not only give us rich history, but also this earliest known image of Jesus. And as you can see in that image, Jesus and his disciples are anything but European. They're very dark. So the question is, how did Christianity go from a brown skinned Hebrew Jesus to a white skinned European Jesus? You see, biblically speaking, Jesus was not white. Historically speaking, Jesus was not white. Ethnically speaking, Jesus was not white. Theologically speaking, Jesus was not white. But in the fourth century, after the conversion of Emperor Constantine in 313 AD, <clears throat> Christianity became the state religion. And Jesus then became sociologically, theoretically, and culturally white. In about the 15th century, depictions of Jesus as a blonde-haired, blue-eyed white man support and reinforce the lie of white supremacy. Because you can't enslave black-skinned people if you believe Jesus was a brown-skinned Hebrew. So you must change Jesus to make him look like you. You must recreate God, or rather create God after your own image. Because we're made after God's own image, God is spirit, but that's speaking more of the fact that we can communicate with God, we're rational people, um, we have understanding, and we can love and be loved. Uh, we're made in his image, so God is spirit. But racists make God after their own image. So you see Michelangelo's fresco in the Sistine Chapel of God reaching out his hand to touch Adam and give Adam life, and God looks like Santa Claus. And Adam looks like a guy that you can run into in the grocery store in a suburban community in Idaho somewhere. So, so whiteness dominates the world. They also dominate how Jesus is depicted because you can't enslave black-skinned people if you believe Jesus was a brown-skinned Hebrew. And it's hard to worship a brown-skinned Jesus if you believe that people who look like him are cursed to slavery. So you must make Jesus white in order to worship him. So white Jesus is a product and icon of white supremacy. And if you are irritated by me preaching this right now, by me exposing and correcting the lie of white Jesus, it could be that your faith is rooted in white supremacy. And if we're honest, all of us have our faith rooted in white supremacy. I grew up in a black church seeing a white Jesus in the baptistry and a white John the Baptist. And again, we get conditioned by the things that we see. My grandfather had the traditional, typical picture of Jesus hanging in his office. So we've all been conditioned by white Jesus. You see, white Jesus cares little about black lives. And if you're following white Jesus or Western Jesus, you won't care much about black lives either, which is why all of us need to get back to the biblical Jesus, the Hebraic Jesus, the Israeli Jesus, the brown skin Jesus, the Jesus who is the son of God and the son of man. The Jesus who was born of a virgin.
The Jesus who whose family had to take him into Africa to flee from Herod as a refugee. That Jesus who could blend in in Africa because of his brown skin. So let's preach and teach the biblical Jesus, not the culturally comfortable, always accepted, the Jesus we've been conditioned by. Come on, somebody. And I got to say this also before I move on. Black folks, if you're following a black Jesus, you won't care much for white lives yourself. Again, we got to follow the Jesus who loves all people. We got to follow the Jesus who gave his life for Jews and for Greeks and who rose again from the grave. The true Jesus, the only wise son of the living God. As I wrap this up, through racism, white Americans controlled the interpretation of the Bible, the depiction of Jesus and the description of black people. So racist whites portrayed blacks. My ancestors as being lazy, ignorant, overly sexual, irresponsible, violent, menacing, and dangerous, especially to white women. And so if you believe this for hundreds of years and you pass this down to your children and your children's children, you will see black people as a constant threat and our skin becomes a weapon even when there is no weapon in our hands. You will clutch your purse because you were taught that we were thieves. You won't get in a swimming pool with us because you were taught that we were dirty. And that may be why the coronavirus is spreading so quickly and rapidly amongst the black community, some white person said I saw on social media. So if you believe these lies, that, that, that black people are menacing people, then you'll be quick to kill them. And if you also believe that black people are nothing more than cattle on the level of animals, and in this country, lower than animals, you can kill them and leave them in the street, suffer no remorse. You can have a picnic and invite your family, and you can literally hang a black person or burn a black person because their lives didn't mean anything in this country. But a new day is dawning. Truth is emerging. And people are being convicted of the sins that they've inherited from their ancestors. People are taking off these lenses that they've inherited and they're trying to get some biblical lenses to see world and people the way God sees people. Proverbs 18, 17 says, the first to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes to examine him. So for 350 years in this country, White people have by and large had the microphone to plead their cause and to even come up with a lost cause in order to sanitize the racism of those in the South and to try to act like the losers won the war between brothers, the Civil War. And so whites have, have had the authority and the power to plead a cause, to tell a narrative for 350 years. And my people could barely rise up to refute the things that we're saying. Now, when I refute things today, people just get mad at me. They cut me off on social media. You know, they may send me a nasty email or whatever. But back in the day, and that's not to say that there aren't black people who don't get physically threatened because I've been threatened as well. But back in the day, my people, there was a price to pay for speaking the truth and rising up. You were thought of as being an agitator. Um, you was thought as someone who uh, would, would, would uh, ruffle the feathers and shake things up. So you became a threat and they would take you out. But I'm standing on the shoulders of men and women who went before me, who paid a great cause for me to stand here in this church in the South for such a time as this and preach the word of God. What thus saith the Lord, whether you like it or you don't like it, whether you receive it or you don't receive it, I'm going to pe preach the truth. And I know God is going to use the truth to touch people's lives. It may not be everybody. But there'll be a few people because there's the road that leads to heaven is straight and narrow and only a few are on it. And so there are white folks who are saying, man, I'm tired of believing the lie. I'm ready for the truth. 
And I'm thankful for voices that are not afraid to say what the Bible says. And by the grace of God, I am one and I will remain one. Even if you label me as angry, I'm just passionate. Yeah, I'm, I, I get angry at sin. I try not to get angry at people. But man, I get angry at those spirits. I get angry at sin. But, but, but people label me as angry. No, I'm not angry. You, you don't want to meet some of the angry brothers who are out here. I may get labeled as divisive, not preaching the gospel, being a liberal. That's all right. You can call me names. It just causes me to have a bigger crown when I get to see Jesus. Because Jesus says, blessed are you when men revile you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. For great is your reward in heaven. For so they did to the prophets of old. You see, when you're a prophet preacher, a prophetic preacher, and God puts some, some steel in your back and you preach the word of God because there's fire in your bosom. Man, you let the chips fall where they may. You make your forehead like flint and your heart like flesh. But for those other preachers, they're not prophetic, they're pathetic. And they're more concerned about losing members, which means losing money. They're more concerned about losing prestige than about pleasing our God that he may say well done. I'm so glad, I'm so glad. I've got men in my life and people who will encourage me, pastor, preach the word. Because I believe that when you know better, you will do better. Because you may say, man, why do we need to hear a word like this right now? Because this is what's being talked about right now. And the church needs to be relevant in order to minister to the culture as well as the people in the church who are to impact culture. So I'm here to let you know that black lives have always mattered to God, even though they have not always mattered to the descendants of Japheth. You see, the purpose of this message is to transform our minds by the renewing of scripture so that we will not be conformed to the racist patterns of this world. So if scripture is not dictating what you should be thinking about as pertains to people, especially African or Hamitic people, the world will squeeze you into a racist mold, even as a Christian. But once again, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So I am here to say that my black life matters to the God who made me and my black life matters to the God who saved me. I am unashamedly a Christian and I am unapologetically black. I am not cursed. I am blessed. I am made in the image of God and he loves me. And so I just want to say to any black person who's been wondering about their value today, you matter to God. Black man, your life matters. Black woman, your life matters. Black boy, your life matters. Black girl, your life matters. And it matters to the one who should matter the most to all of us. Father, thank you for this word. In Jesus' name, amen.